listening to episode 16, chapter 3 of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. I'm Josh Havens. And I'm Chris Lamberth. And we're on a journey to learn what it means to live a lifestyle of discipleship. We're glad you're joining us and hope that as you set aside this time for God, that He will help you grow today in the everyday moments of life. Today we're continuing our conversation with Casey Tigrid. He's an author, pastor, and spiritual director. He's the host of the Otherwise podcast, a place for gathering wise conversations about living well on the journey with Jesus. He holds both a Master of Divinity degree and a Doctor of Ministry in Spiritual Formation degree from Lincoln Christian Seminary. He has taught both graduate and undergraduate level courses in Christian higher education in the United States and Australia. He also serves as a board member for the Apprentice Institute a program focusing on Christian spiritual formation located at Friends University in Wichita, Kansas. He's the author of two books, Becoming Curious, A Spiritual Practice of Asking Questions, and As I Recall, Discovering the Place of Memories in the Spiritual Life, both with InterVarsity Press. Casey has served both in rural churches of 25 and suburban megachurches of 10,000. He and his wife Holly and their daughter Bailey currently live in Chicago, Illinois, where he is the theologian in residence at Parkview Christian Church. The way God created us never ceases to amaze me. It seems as though every part of our being has some sort of connection to every other part. And even though we don't always recognize these connections, they are at work in our lives shaping us into the people we are. For instance, it's amazing that small, consistent actions each day can end up defining your entire life. Our habits, like our memories, define who we are. And there is a powerful interplay between the two. One forms the other, which forms the other, and so on. And because of our conversation with Casey, I'm more convinced than ever that God created it this way. Our memories are the record of the past. Our habits are the projection of the future. It would seem like they would be at odds with one another as each attempts to pull us in opposite directions. But in fact, the opposite is true. When we allow our habits and memories to work together, we find God's grace working in our lives to redeem our memories so that we may create new habits of walking with Him. What is the role, though, that memory, how do habit and memory play into each other? Did you do much research on that area? I, I didn't for the book, but I've read some things about it before. And, and just like with remembering, um, it's about repeating, repeatedly going back to that idea. Habits also do the same thing. So habits, there's a couple different kinds of memory that we have. There's procedural memory. There's semantic memory. So semantic memory is more about facts and figures and things. Uh, s- procedural memory is when you do something over and over again until you wear a, ha- a groove in your brain and you don't even think about it. So n- very few of us think about tying our shoes anymore, which is why it's so hard to teach somebody else to do it because you've gotten to the point where your brain just clicks into an automatic mode. Uh, so, and then there's also something called uh, episodic memory, which is about a whole story. And really great memories come at the at the meeting place of all three of those. So if you know where you were, where you were, you know what you were doing, and you remember some details, your memory grows incredibly clear. But habits do give us an automatic kind of, kind of mentality. 
And that's why the church calendar is such a powerful thing. If you habitually come back to these themes of Epiphany and Lent and Pentecost, and you know, you keep coming back to all of these things, even in the course of a year, we grow to expect them and to desire them. And so our habits can be the same way. Now you can get into a rut too. And when that happens, you sort of need to shake your brain and do something different and bring in a different practice or a different tool. But that that's a lot of the ways that habit shapes uh, our physical brain, which of course affects everything else. How long, this might be a, an awkward question because I don't quite know how to phrase this as far as how much of our brains get physically inroaded. So you can help correct me. Um, but because I'm interested in biohacking and I'm always looking for new ways of, you know, shortening the, the, the distance between uh, mastering a skill of, of some sort, uh, how long does it take for us to ingrain some of these neural pathways so that we can either form memories more quickly or maybe form habits more quickly? I don't actually know. Uh, that wasn't something I spent much time with. I know for me, I can tell you for me, it doesn't take very long to create familiarity with a habit. It takes a long time for it to become a routine. So there's there's a, a time when it's a practice and it's a habit, and that doesn't take very long at all because you just you just do it. But for it to become a routine where you start to expect it, I think they say something like six to nine months of doing something consistently before it actually takes you know, takes root and sort of lives on its own. And you start to, you start to really long for it and hunger for it. Have you done things, you talk about it in the book, um, particularly with smell, that smell is the one sense that bypasses our short-term memory and it, it goes right to, right to long-term memory. And, and that's so true because I can smell a cologne that I wore in like high school and I'm instantly transported back to high school. And it's just like, whoa, what just happened? Or, uh, I don't know if you're like me, I have two memories when that happens. One is, oh, I remember that. And the other memory is, why did I wear that? (laughs) (laughs) Gosh, it's It's horrible. No one should be exposed to that kind of thing. That's true. Maybe we should talk about the cologne our grandfather's wore, because I definitely have that thought. (laughs) Oh, yeah. My grandfather smoked cherry tobacco in his pipe, and I can smell it. That's my great-grandfather. That's a very distinct smell. Every time I smell it, I'm like six years old all over again. Yeah, and, and for me, the fall... You know, that first cool fall air that comes through, it the first thing that comes to my mind is football season. It's it's not that it's fall, it's it's football. And there's a distinct smell to me that I that I get. Anyway, um have you tried using or it it, it comes to mind, maybe we could hack some of these things through like uh, incorporating other senses like that. So like smell. And I remember when I wrote my uh, my master's thesis in seminary, I had to have certain a certain candle lit <laughs> in order to write, and it sort of just sort of brought me into that space for some reason. You know, my wife would always kind of tease me, but I'm like, I got to do it now. Like, I've started it, and um, have you experimented personally with anything like that, though? Yeah, I think I, I, there was a tea that I drank while I was writing this book that it's a. Uh... It's called Montana Gold, and it has a specific cinnamon kind of smell to it. And every time I smell it, it puts me back in the space of of writing, and it reminds me of that period in time, which was kind of chaotic, which is part of the part of the book too, as it transitions. But but it is interesting too. It can bring us back to a memory, but it can also be used. Smell can also be used to correct us a little bit. There's the interchange between Peter and Jesus on the beach. 
after Jesus is resurrected. And there's a word in the New Testament, it's only used twice. I think it's anthrakia, which is a word for charcoal fire. It's used once when Peter's in the courtyard and denies Jesus. And the only other time it's used is on the beach when he's having breakfast with Jesus after the resurrection, where Jesus goes through the, do you love me questions? So he denies him three times by a fire. And then he's reinstated through three questions by a fire. And I can't imagine that smell escaped Peter's memory. You know, as he's being asked those questions in his nose is this same smell, that charcoal fire smell that we all know so well. Uh, So it can be a powerful way of bringing us back to something and helping us process through it and deal with it. Speaking of that, you know, that's a really great example of, well, and maybe one of the greatest examples of a bad memory being redeemed right there, a direct connection. And I'd never seen that that connection before until I read it, you know, in your book and you pointed that out. I was like, oh, that is really cool. And, and you're right, for an author or somebody influencing an author writing about that, it would be really hard to miss that point. Um so how does how does God or how how can we work with the Holy Spirit in order to have these negative? It could be anything from a loss of a loved one to uh, maybe it was just a, a failure in your life somewhere. I have a particular failure of a, a leadership failure that I had in in college that plagued me for a long time, and it had to work a lot to you know I was just sort of like okay leadership's clearly not for me I need to hang it up. Um, how do we work through those and, and, and work with the Holy Spirit to redeem those? Because clearly there's a redemption moment there with Peter, um, but we don't walk with, with the Lord physically to, to have that interaction. How do we do that? I do think, again, it's, I think it's about just being honest about what that memory really is. I think it's Going through the process, one of the things that I think through when I read that passage with Peter and Jesus is it didn't, it shouldn't have taken three questions. There's two things that don't happen. One is Jesus never talks about what actually happened. So he doesn't draw attention to the memory, probably because he's aware and Peter's aware after the whole incident where he jumps off the boat and swims to shore and just hopes that everything's okay. Uh, So he never brings that up. He also never asks Peter to grovel, to repent, to confess, any of that stuff. He just asks him three questions. And those three questions obviously are rooted in three denials. That that parallel for John is really important. But they're also the questions that take him out. So it took three questions for him to get into the denial, and it takes three more for him to get out of it. And so I think there's a process to... When we go through this process of redeeming our memories, it's going to take some time, especially if they're as significant as if they're significant enough that we bring them to mind. They're going to take a while for us to process through them, uh, probably because they're multi-layered, probably because they've been around for a long, long time, and they're like that thing in your house that has always been hanging on the wall, and you don't look at it, but then somebody comes over, they're like, "Hey, nice painting," and you go, "Oh yeah, I sort of forgot that was there." Uh, it gives us a chance to go back to it and then slowly but surely come through the different layers of it. And, and that's, I, I think it takes some time. It definitely takes prayer for some of us. It's going to take meeting with a skilled counselor or a spiritual director to help process through that. But the biggest point is to know that it's valuable and it is like clay or oil pastels that God wants to use to make something beautiful. 
And I think if we can keep those two things in mind, like this is, yes, this memory matters and God is going to make something beautiful out of it because he can do no other. This is where we are. This is how I got here. So I think if we keep those things in mind and, and go to them with God, with that in mind, that's where the redemption process really is catalyzed and fired. I love what you're. I love. I love what you brought up about uh, how Jesus walked into that with Peter, not really bringing up the past memory, not not shaming him or anything like that. One of my favorite quotes from the practice of the presence of God by Brother Lawrence is where he kind of defines what the practice of the presence of God is like. And he, uh, I'm going to paraphrase and probably butcher it, but we can put a link in the show notes. Uh, he says something along the lines of, "When when I come to God." with all my problems, I, I confessing my sin and all these things, he, he kind of just ignores that, pushes it to the side, sets me at his table, and kind of gives me the keys to the entire house. And, and it's, it's like when you come into the presence of God, all of your junk kind of falls away, and it's just about you being there with God and him shaping you into the image of, of Christ, really. And it's, it's so important to me because we spend so much time afraid of dealing with our past memories, afraid of dealing with our pain, because we're afraid that God's going to punish us for that in the moment. we got to get through that punishment. We have to endure some kind of major trauma to redeem the, the past. But really, if you look at how God approaches people in Scripture and, and what the saints throughout church history have, have said about what it's like to come before the throne of grace— you don't find that stuff. There is so much grace in the way that we remember. I mean, so much grace and so much, so much of what has been taught even from, even from a Christian perspective. And I'm not, I'm not putting down anybody who's done this in the past, but people have come to our churches and learned and somehow come along with the message that our past doesn't matter. And that, uh, part of the gospel is letting go of your past, which there's a part of that that's legit. There's a part of that where not being defined by your past is important, but being determined. Your past does determine some things because we're all living with consequences. Some of them aren't even ours. You know, you, t- you hear that passage in Deuteronomy about visiting the sin of the fathers and the generations that come. You know, that doesn't have to be, that's not a process that begins with the pushing of a button. That just happens. And there's even research now to say that the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors carry the same PTSD symptoms in them because of their DNA. And so we can't leave the past behind even if we wanted to. So it may not define us, but it definitely determines us. But the grace comes when we are able to bring all of that and not and and not regret it and not push it aside and not believe to to acknowledge it as somehow sinful but to do what brother lawrence is saying we come to the table we bring all of ourselves and we lay it down and we just we just kind of sort of spread it out on the table like a photo album and say let's look through this and god can you can you remind us of why this matters and how how you're going to do something good with this in the future In this chapter with Casey, I came away with three steps I want to take as I process my past memories in light of God's grace. First, I want to embrace the memories. It's only when I accept them and bring them before God that I can begin the process of receiving God's grace in those memories. Second, I want to continue to review those memories as often as is necessary when I begin to forget 
God's grace for the things I regret. Finally, I want to process and work through those memories with another person who can help me see things that I've missed and point me to God's grace and what God's doing in my life. After we recorded this conversation with Casey, I found the quote from Brother Lawrence, and this is what he said, I am sure that my soul has been with God for more than 30 years. I consider God my king against whom I've committed all sorts of crimes. Confessing my sins to him and asking him to forgive me, I place myself in his hands to do whatever he pleases with me. This king, who is full of goodness and mercy, doesn't punish me. Rather, he embraces me lovingly and invites me to eat at his table. He serves me himself and gives me the keys to his treasury, treating me as his favorite. He converses with me without mentioning my sins or my forgiveness. My former habits are seemingly forgotten. Although I beg him to do whatever he wishes with me, he does nothing but caress me. And this is what being in his holy presence is like. When I bring my past and the things that I regret to my Heavenly Father, he's always given me nothing but grace, without exception. If you're listening to this today and you're a recovering legalist like me, I want to challenge you to spend 15 minutes with God today. Picture yourself at a table with a stack of photographs that represent your past, the things that you would rather forget. Then, one by one, go through them and lay them all out for God to see. Then I want you to go and read John 21 and see firsthand how God showed grace to Peter in the memory of Peter's denial only a few days before. Thanks for listening to the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. To find out more about Casey and his work, check out caseytigret.com. You can also follow him on Facebook or check him out on Instagram and Twitter at CKTigret. You should also check out his book, As I Recall, Discovering the Place of Memories in the Spiritual Life at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or InterVarsity Press. If you follow the link to Casey's book in the show notes, you'll also be helping support Daily Growth Discipleship through Amazon's affiliate program. If you want to stay up to date on everything that's happening at Daily Growth Discipleship, be sure to subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Spotify.